Chris, welcome to the Inking of Immunity podcast. I am here as per usual with my trusty co-hosts, Becky and Mike. Mike, who are we talking to today? I'm so glad you asked that, Chris. Uh, <clears throat> today we're talking with Dr. Marie Hadley, a lecturer at the University of Newcastle and their law school in Australia. Uh, Marie studies intellectual property law with an expertise in copyright law and IP norms. Her work seeks to better understand the relationship between law and society, typically in the context of disputes over visual imagery. Marie adopts socio-legal methods in her research to investigate the legal, ethical, and cultural dimensions of controversies involving copyright law. Her PhD thesis, uh, The Politics of Cultural Appropriation Claims and Law Reform, was awarded a PhD Excellence Award and shortlisted for an inaugural Australian Legal Research Award. The thesis explores the argument for law reform to prevent the cultural appropriation of Maori and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture, with a particular focus on the protection of cultural imagery and, and art styles. In addition to academic publications on the Western bias of intellectual property law and the historical and cultural contingency of cultural appropriation, Marie has contributed to media commentary on tattoo law and cultural appropriation. Welcome to the podcast, Marie. Thank you for having me. Hi, Marie. That sounds so interesting. Um, and it's so great to meet you as well. Um, could you just tell us a little bit more about you and where you came from in terms of your academic development, you know, your area of expertise and what sort of drew you to this area? Yeah, sure. Um, so I have been at the University of Newcastle for nearly two years now, and this is my first academic appointment. Um, I finished my law degree back in 2008, and before that I did a social science degree with a major in sociology. And basically after that I went straight into my PhD and then I did it slowly part-time over nine years while I had my kids. Um, and during that time, I taught at the university. Uh, so throughout, I guess, you know, my entire academic career so far, I've always been really interested in art law. And that goes back way probably to 2007, at least when I first studied intellectual property. So when I first came across, I guess, the Western bias of intellectual property and how it privileges certain understandings of owning, knowing and creating art and what that might mean for the theft of culture. So, yeah, so my academic interest in this area go back to then um, and then obviously that carried through with my PhD. That's amazing. Wow. This is, um, you know, I mean, we're all tattoo researchers, so everybody we have on here, we have some familiarity with but you're the first person that we've had on who's a legal scholar doing something that is super obvious but but frankly from the research we've done and the people we've talked to like really left field so you know we've been tweeting back and forth for a year but i'm super excited to have you on so thank you thank you and i want to ask you just starting off because uh I won't tell you how old we are, but Becky and I are the same age and we, we tend to be a little older than a lot of our guests on here. And, you know, I grew up with Mike Tyson 
as a cultural, I'm just going to say it, uh, a cultural douchebag that we had to deal with. <laughs> when he got this tattoo on his face as someone who was familiar with the tribal uh, and the neo-tribal movements, it just looks stupid, right? I, I thought it was the dumbest tattoo ever. So I'm just putting all that out there before I ask you, like, these technical questions because Mike Tyson, because he is so famous, I think, has created an opportunity for us to to dig in. Um, so let me give our listeners some perspective because you have an article that came out last year called Whitmill versus Warner Brothers and the Visibility of Cultural Appropriation Intellectual Property Review, which I'm just going to tell our, our listeners may not sound like your first go-to uh, like pleasure reading for the <laughs> toilet, but this is cool shit, right? Like I, I am fascinated by how tattooing on athletes and celebrities is negotiated and he is both, right? So in 2002, uh, Mike Tyson got a facial tattoo that is basically what in the 1980s we, we were calling tribal and neo-tribal that was basically made to seem kind of like a warrior design. And it's kind of based on Tomoka, which is a Maori style and other indigenous designs. So I guess like, why are people pissed off about this tattoo? Oh, there are so many reasons. And I think the fact that you started with how Mike Tyson is a controversial figure, I mean, that is one of the first comments that was made when the tattoo was criticised was that a um, politician, a Maori politician in New Zealand came out and said, I don't like this tattoo because of Tyson's criminal past. So there was the idea that because there was this loose association with Tamoko, because um, the Tyson's tattoo artist, Whitmill, had actually shown Tyson pictures of Tamoko before designing the tattoo, and because there was that kind of loose association with Tamoko there, there was this idea that because Tyson was a little bit undesirable, or a lot, depending on your opinion, undesirable as a person, he didn't have these, how corrode the underlying culture or dilute it or associate it with negative things when Tamoko is such a sacred art form. So I think Tyson's personal traits were definitely relevant to those objections to the design before you even look at the design and its composition itself. Um, but also, I mean, the fact that he's high profile um, obviously plays into it here. And the fact that the tattoo is on the face when facial moko is, you know, something for revered cultural leaders, I think that kind of exacerbated that critique. Um, and all of that's before you even look at what the tattoo actually is and what it might have taken mm -hmm. from culture. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you're right because, I mean, Mike Tyson is still in television commercials and if he'd raped someone, bit someone's ear off and then culturally appropriated, say, last year, his career would be done, but it seems to have been rehabilitated lately. He's doing television commercials and stuff, but that's not actually what the lawsuit is, right? The lawsuit isn't the Maori suing Mike Tyson. It's the artist who gave Tyson the tattoo, a Vegas tattooist named Victor Whitmill, sued Warner Brothers for basically making fun of Mike Tyson, is, is the way I read it, in Hangover 2, I think 
by giving a similar looking tattoo to one of its characters during a blackout drunk. And this is a bigger issue and I'll, I'll completely out myself as someone who has tattoos. I'll, and actually I'll show it because I know we're live, right? So this tattoo I gave to myself, but I actually, it's another artist's work, right? I, I liked it and I, I gave it to myself. Now I have definitely appropriated someone's work, but there was no money exchange. So I feel somewhat guilty about it, but unpack for me, or for our listeners, what's going on and what is and isn't protected here? Um, well, in terms of the case itself, what happened um, was just a pretty straightforward instance of copyright infringement. So the tattoo artist basically said, um, I created an original artwork and that original artwork was taken without permission by Warner Brothers. And when you're a copyright owner, you have certain exclusive rights. And one of those rights is the right of reproduction. Um, so people can't just copy your work and say, put it in a film or put it on another person's body without that amounting to infringement. So in terms of um, your tattoo, if that was a copyright work, it being reproduced on you, would likely amount to copyright infringement. Um, it sounds like it was a pretty direct copy there. It was totally direct copy. I owe <laughs> someone something. Yeah, but the, the interest... So no money was exchanged and I'm wearing this item. I don't know. So it gets a little bit more complicated when there's no money exchanged because one of the things with IP law is that it's usually not worthwhile suing unless you can get damages. And so mm. if there's no financial loss or only a small amount of financial loss if it costs only a couple hundred dollars say um well what can you say that the damage is and if there's no loss why would you bother suing because suing is not an easy or <laughs> fun process for anyone it takes time it takes energy it takes effort and costs money so yeah what if hypothetically i got the face of the guy who played the main character in vikings tattooed on me what then is that oh. copyright? Who would do such a thing? Who? Who, I wonder, would do such a thing? Oh, I mean, well... <laughs> never do that. That's quite a dramatic statement that you'd be making. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I guess... I'm not saying that anyone here has any tattoos like that, but, you know... I, I guess it would <laughs> just come down to whether that, that original work, that work was protected by copyright, um, for starters. Because if it's not protected by copyright, it's not an infringement. But also, it depends who you are, too, because if people don't know you've infringed, it's very hard to sue you. So, Yeah. So, so joking aside, I mean, the point is, like, Indigenous and Western tattooing is appropriated, like, every second of every day somewhere, right? Yeah. Like, this is so huge. So this particular case hangs on the fact that he freehanded it onto Mike Tyson's face. There was no sketch, but Mike Tyson signed something saying it was his original art. So when we're thinking about this issue, we're thinking on the one hand about this specific case, but, but I think your interest is more meta, right? We wanna, we wanna step back and look at what are the issues that are at hand. One seems to be just basic copyright, but the other is the appropriation issue, right? Um, in terms of the cultural angle or in terms of appropriation and how acceptable that is within the community generally? Both, both. Sorry. Because you've also written about examples where 
images have been appropriately licensed, right? So yeah, that's um, right. as you said, there's a lot of stuff going on here. So maybe bullet those for us. What are the issues? Yeah. So just generally in terms of the appropriation of culture and what's protected versus what's not, um, copyright protects the expression of ideas. It doesn't protect art styles generally. And so what that means is if you had an Indigenous artwork, like any other artwork, if that's expressed in a material form, so if that's been, you know, reduced to a sketch or painted or tattooed on the body, um, then that work can be an original work that subsists in copyright like any other. The problem is, though, is that if you look to an Indigenous culture's art style and are just inspired by it generally, Copyright doesn't have anything to say about that because those styles aren't reduced to material form yet. Those styles aren't protected in and of themselves. And like what happened with Tyson's tattoo, the tattoo artist created an original work, even though they were inspired by another culture's imagery, because that threshold of an original work is very, very low. So all it essentially requires is that you didn't copy an existing tattoo and yeah because he free-handed it um, he sketched it in texture on Tyson's face he's the person that created it he's the person that reduced it to material form the fact it might resemble other neo-tribal tattoos or that it might resemble you know um, tamok or generally or have similar features is irrelevant so that threshold of what's protected um, is very easy to meet when it comes to tattoos but The interesting thing, I think, is um, or one of the areas that I find really interesting about this area is that you have the cultural rules about what's appropriate or not over here. Then you have what copyright says um, is protected or infringing behaviour. But then you also have the norms within the community about what tattoo enthusiasts and what tattooists see as appropriate or ethical behaviour. And those three things sometimes align but are often in conflict. And that's what I find um, most kind of interesting, that tension. That's what I like exploring. If I could just ask, I mean, is that lawsuit with Mike Tyson and the hangover Warner Brothers, is that Yeah, so that case settled. So it was... Yeah, it was big and it was all over the news. It got to a preliminary injunction hearing um, and then it settled. So it doesn't have precedent value. So, you know, the there was no definitive statement around these tattoo law issues, but there were some comments from the judge in the preliminary hearing, which I think are quite telling. And and the judge basically says or mentions in her comments that, of course, tattoos can be copyrighted. It's, it doesn't matter that it's essentially on the body. The body doesn't mean that suddenly it's not reduced to material form. Um, it's an artwork basically like any other artwork, even though to the individual it can be something quite special and self-expressive. And even though it might feel a little bit strange that the body is seen as a canvas like a piece of paper, but, yeah, there, there's no, I guess, um, principle that prevents tattoos being copyrighted. Yeah. I was thinking when I when I was first reading about it and thinking, 
oh, that's that's just really ridiculous to to put in a lawsuit for that. But now I can kind of see his point <laughs> because he did freehand that and they were kind of making fun of it, even though I get it. Um, but, but the fact you find that interesting is what I find interesting. Because obviously, I mean, if you're a tattoo enthusiast and within the community and you love this type of artwork, it does feel a little bit wrong. Like it's like, no, it's a tattoo. It belongs, to, you might see it as belonging to Tyson, say, and because he's in the film, therefore it seems legitimate that they would use that. But, I mean, yeah. law separates these things out a little bit and the fact that it's on the body doesn't mean it's the individual's to law it means it's the person who created it yeah so it does feel counterintuitive but that's that's what I find fascinating yeah it's really really interesting yeah I had never thought of it like that before and so now thinking about people who do just copy each other's tattoo work and I know I know you know ethically it's frowned upon just to copy somebody else's tattoo you know taking someone's picture of a tattoo and going can you copy this onto me and people do it and it's really frowned upon but now it kind of adds another layer for us in thinking about that so I know we've mentioned before where I'd seen one where that someone had copied someone's chest tattoo and the artist who'd copied it had also copied the nipple into it by accident well so, so someone's just got this random nipple tattooed within them and I love that one that's karma it is isn't it so Maria I'm really fascinated with this uh particularly what you talked about before, this Western bias uh, in terms of intellectual property right law. And it reminds me of another example, not specific to tattoos, but I'm, I'm writing a paper for one of my graduate courses looking at psychedelic medicine and the appropriations that are happening in terms of indigenous cultural and therapeutic practices. Specifically, there's a controversy around psilocybin or magic mushrooms breaking down the whole plant into its specific constituent parts and then fattening those parts by pharmaceutical companies. So it reminds me of this kind of reducing a cultural practice and art forms and styles into specific tattoos that we can pick and choose from. I wonder, is there anything happening in terms of law surrounding uh, indigenous intellectual property? Um, that's an interesting question because in Australia, there's been pushes for changes to IP law to make it, I guess, more inclusive um, and be able to be used by Indigenous peoples to protect their traditional knowledge. And those debates, like in Australia at least, have been around since at least kind of the early 90s, so at least around 30 years. Um, but political will is a little bit lacking. But in Australia at the moment, there's a lot of art law and um, policy kind of push around protecting Indigenous art styles, but through consumer law. So stopping people who aren't Indigenous, essentially um, doing dot painting on souvenirs. And those types of policy shifts really seem to be gaining momentum. And there's been a couple of bills in that area, although they haven't passed. Um, there's also some international law developments in the space and some some regions and some countries have introduced essentially traditional knowledge legislation. But 
in Australia that hasn't happened yet. Uh, I'm curious, Australia, New Zealand, um, they, they loom large in my own mind because I work in Samoa and American Samoa. So they're, you know, even though, even though American Samoa is a, an American territory, most Americans don't know that. So it's so distant to us that the tattooing culture of American Samoa, unless you watch football, isn't as apparent here maybe as it, it is there. So I'm curious, is this a bigger issue there than it is in the US? Because I don't hear people talking about it much here. In terms of cultural appropriation? Yeah. Generally, um, I would say it's a big issue wherever you have First Nations people. And I think maybe it depends on your discipline as to how those debates kind of manifest. Um, but I've read um, North American commentary. I've read like Canadian commentary, um, like Inuit culture. Like it, it is an issue that I think affects so many of the world's First Nations people. I mean, I guess what I'm, I'm saying is not that we're not aware of First Nations problems in that regard, but that the tattooing practices specifically yeah. were so thoroughly eradicated among most of the First Nations peoples in the United States. So only on the West Coast are there still active and revitalized and reinvented practices. It's only in the Pacific where some of the practices have persisted so we are under yeah, in in that sort of process so i was just wondering if because there's such a large samoan diaspora in new zealand you know and the maori tattooing is so internationally well known even though they had had that suppressed by colonial agents too i was, I was just curious if if you had a sense that tattooing in particular as intellectual property was more of a more prominent issue there because the tribes in these regions the tattooing was completely eradicated by colonial agents. So we only have the historical uh, accounts to sort of draw on. Yeah, well, I think in terms of um, tattooing specifically, uh, the Pacific, um, I do know that in New Zealand there was a massive revitalization of Maori art in the late 80s, early 90s, and tattooing was a part of that. Tamoko was a part of that. Um, and I think even Pacific culture generally, um, tattooing practices are such a huge part of Pacific culture and the expression of art, but also genealogy and, you know, um, ta yeah, tattooing is an integral part of the culture in those regions. So I think in terms of the way that, you know, tattooing and cultural appropriation that discourse is developing. I don't think it's surprising at all that the Pacific is kind of the centre of that, or at least there's a lot of research around it. Um, and also the revitalisation movements are quite strong. I don't know if it's to do with where I am geographically or whether it's because of the discipline I'm in, but it was, you know, cultural appropriation and tattooing was never something I'd even considered until we started doing this podcast. Um, I think it was when we were talking to Maya and it all of a sudden dawned on us that, you know, when people talk about getting, you know, Maori tattoos and things and what that actually means, because to me, it just always was an aesthetic. It was just, I could picture what that was. Um, and I never thought of it in any other kind of context. And I, so I don't know whether that was just me being really insular and not looking at that kind of thing. But I get the impression that it's, um, it's not something that people here at least think about it very much. 
Yeah, it's really interesting you say that because um, some of my research suggests that tribal or neo-tribal is seen as depoliticized and it's seen mm-hmm. as a very Western tattoo art, yeah. even though it has its roots in being inspired from, you know, from Borneo, from Asia, yeah. um, from the Pacific. And what I find interesting around that is that that discourse that it's somehow decontextualized art and it's just, you know, um, it's just tattoo art that has a bit of an aesthetic that may kind of link a little bit, but not so much to the Pacific region. Um, but at the same time, it can, you know, be objected to as something which is culturally harmful, but also, you know, a, a kind of that objection can become a real um, vehicle for an expression of dissatisfaction with the state of society generally because this appropriation of art is seen to continue the appropriation of land so on the one hand you've got this decontextualized art form and you just you like it you want it you see it as powerful therefore you want it on your body but on the other hand I mean there's a whole different set of concerns that are there Um, so that tension I think yeah, exists. And you can see, even um, I've read some interviews with Leo Zulueta, like more recent interviews, and he is, I guess, cognizant of that tension as well because he says things in these interviews like it can be very disrespectful to appropriate Maori culture and, and my tattoos are from my standing in the, like my experiences and they're I never meant to be disrespectful um, and they're my contemporary interpretations of this mm-hmm. older imagery and, and all the rest. So I think for someone who has, you know, I guess associated with the birth of this depoliticized, decontextualized art form to also be aware of where um, contemporary politics around it is that I think is quite interesting too. I know I was I was just thinking about that when you talked earlier about how these are pretty muddy waters when you get into it. Um, thinking about intention, um, if the intent is not to appropriate, then how difficult it must be to actually sue or litigate or actually get some sort of reparation mm. for that. Um, the thing with intention that I think is interesting um, is this tension between appreciation and appropriation. For me, you know, intention to copy, like from a legal point of view, I don't have much to say about that because the, the legal tests are the legal tests and if you've got enough evidence, you can prove infringement. But the idea of appreciation versus appropriation is interesting and to what extent that changes or doesn't change the perception of harm, um, I think is another interesting question. So if you're meaning to do the right thing and you're meaning to, I guess, you love this particular culture and that's why you want that imagery on your body and the question of whether that excuses that conduct or makes that conduct okay, um, I think is a really interesting one. And I don't have an answer. (laughs) to that because I I think at the end of the day you do need to be assessing harm from the perspective of the community because they're the ones who experience it but I do think that that's an interesting one and even even in my research I've come across people who who say well I create this type of inspired imagery this culturally inspired imagery but it's okay because I've done the research and I think that's interesting too if that somehow 
makes that different morally or not. I don't know. I think I think um, we're a little entitled as the beneficiaries of living in the hegemony, right, in the colonial government that dominated everyone. We feel entitled to decorate our bodies in any way that we can afford, and I want it. So I'm going to take it, and, and I'll give you an example. I, I, this was sort of in an earlier question, and I showed you my hand. But even even worse, when I was younger, and I didn't even think about it at the time, I took a whole Robert Williams book of like hot rod art to a tattoo artist and said, I want this. And they then proceeded not only to give me that, but to, to photocopy the whole book because they were like, wow, look at this stuff, right? And... I don't feel bad about that because I know he's a rich white guy, right? So it's it's sort of the same principle as I'm thinking I download the shit out of some music because I used to be in the music industry. I love music. I collect music. But I don't feel bad unless I know it's some like poor starving artist. And then I'm like, well, I'm a poor starving artist too. I'm just happy if someone listens to my music. So I download the shit out of some music with absolutely no ethical or moral compunction. What I wanted to actually ask you about music downloading and music is Bruno Mars getting sued by Marvin Gaye's estate for modifying a song, taking a melody, right? So you're saying if a tattoo is, is slightly modified, it's no longer copyrighted, but in music, we can argue the other direction. So are we just not sophisticated enough in our tattoo copyright law to be able to go there yet? Oh, that is an interesting question. Um, I don't quite know how to answer that. I think the thing with copyright infringement, right, it's, it's when you take a substantial part of something that it amounts to infringement. And a melody is very distinctive to a song. And some might say it is the most substantial part of a song. Um yeah, I don't know how to answer this because even with even with tattoo art, it's not just about changing something a little bit. It's about whether you've taken a substantial part of that original thing. So something can be, the ultimate design can be different or it could match two or three designs and still be infringement. So I think music and art is maybe not as dissimilar um, as what you suggest. But the question of whether our law is sophisticated enough, I mean, is a very interesting one. And and the question of whether or not it incentivizes creativity and how it intersects or interacts with creativity as well is interesting because I think if you take the cultural angle out of this, I think, you know, from a personal point of view, I think our copyright laws you know, are too strong and they last for too long. But then on the other hand, when it comes to the cultural imagery side of things, I'm like, well, I really think that, you know, other other legal system, indigenous legal systems should be shown more respect. And, you know, if people don't want to share their imagery because it has all these sacred meetings, well, that should, we should leave that alone. Um, yeah, but the question of how much copyright protection is enough and whether it's doing its job properly in terms of incentivizing and rewarding creativity is a, is a tricky one and a different type of question. Um, Chris, you alluded to this earlier, but I wanted to go back to it. Um, Marie, you wrote, talking about the piece you wrote for the conversation oh, yeah. called Explainer, Who Owns the Copyright to Your Tattoo, uh, which based on our conversation, 
and everything you've said, it seems like one of the few times where the law provided some good here. So the piece you wrote was about the licensing of a, and I hope I'm saying this correctly, Jurangini image, a buffalo image that is indigenous to the Tiwi people. And it was it was made by an artist called Chris Black. And this was actually licensed for another tattoo artist to copy on to someone. And you've kind of touched on this already, what makes these cases interesting or special. But I was wondering if you could get into this process. How did this happen? Yeah, so I guess the process here started with the tattoo wearer. And the tattoo wearer in this case worked at an art gallery, uh, an Indigenous art gallery, sorry. So she was aware of the connection between art and culture and wanted to do things in the right way so she didn't just want to take the the image and get it tattooed on her so she reached out to the artist and they negotiated the license terms and then the payment was done through um, the copyright agency which is our collecting society so it was set up in a very respectful way because the tattoo wearer wanted, you know, to show that respect. And so it was, I guess, a bit of a collaborative um, agreement and arrangement with the artist. And I, I found it interesting when reading about this instance that the artist, A, thought it was funny, first of all, that she wanted to get that particular artwork tattooed on her, but B, I mean, he was the questions he asked her was how many copies, how many versions are you going to do and where are you going to put it? And those questions I think are very interesting and, you know, it shows that artists care about what's done with their work and the fact that the placement, you know, was one of the questions tells me that perhaps there are placements that aren't seen to be culturally appropriate or that the artist might have objected to. And so, you know, before we were talking about how having conversations about these things is important. And I think in this instance, you know, at the end of the day, everybody, everybody won here. So the artist was able to ask the questions and get the responses. The artist was paid um, for that use of their work. And the tattoo wearer was able to get the approval for the work to be used in that particular way and know that she had that approval and that she was showing that respect, which was important to her. But yeah, it was it was the first time that a tattoo, um, that an artwork had been licensed for a tattoo in Australia. And I think with our history of Indigenous art ripoffs here, um, it was really nice to yeah. see that that respect was shown. But there hasn't been any since. So, but maybe there will be. <laughs> maybe there'll be more licensing in future. <laughs> I was in American Samoa working with a tattooist there, and I remember a tourist came through and got a, a Taulima, which is an armband. And uh, the way he got it was was wavy. And uh, the artist was like, he was trying to be nice. He was like, this is not usually worn by men. <laughs> <laughs> So are you sure you want it, right? Like this is, uh, and he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't care. I don't. I'm never gonna be back here again. And nobody in Texas knows that. So he went and gave it to him. And I was like, is it okay for you to give a woman's tattoo to an American man? He was like, well, Talima was actually invented for tourists. So yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
They'll just think he's weird. They'll just think he's weird if he ever goes to the islands. He's got a girl's tattoo, but no one's ever going to say anything to him. So it's interesting how the commercial interests kind of come into it there. And he's giving an art form which is not sacred. It is, you know, appropriate. It is well appropriate enough, even if he thinks it's funny what the person asked for. Mm-hmm. But there's no cultural harm done in that situation. Right? Exactly. Really yeah. And it and and it makes me wonder. Do you see the world changing and tattoo artists becoming conscientious about not putting um, copyrighted images on people? Oh, what do you think? <laughs> that's a that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, will tattoo artists get grow some ethics in that <laughs> regard in in the coming decades? I mean, I can see it. Certain certain people try to set themselves and say, you know, I have, my ethical standards are I won't yeah. steal indigenous designs and I won't put, I mean, I can see people taking that stand. I can see others not giving a shit. I, yeah. I'm curious. Yeah. And I think, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, tattooing is a commercial business. Mm. And I think not only will it be potentially driven by what the artist sees ethical or what they are willing or not willing to do, which may be influenced by, you know, things like the rise of cultural appropriation debates in the media, for example. So more awareness and exposure and education around these issues. But but outside of that, it's client-driven as well, right? Mm-hmm. So if there's a greater shift in society, then people aren't going to necessarily be rocking up to, to tattoo us with, you know, a photograph of a design they've seen elsewhere, potentially. So I don't know. <laughs> I, I can't tell <laughs> what the future may hold, but, but I do hope that there continues to be conversations around cultural imagery and what might be appropriate and what's not. I think that can only be a good thing if people are talking about this stuff. Yeah, for sure. So listeners should know uh, I've just fully fessed up to stealing um, images and protecting (laughs) them on myself. I'm not trying to shame anyone, but I I do think that we are saying there is an ethical issue Mm -hmm. here worth discussing. Yeah, worth discussing. And as to whether you change or not, I mean... Yeah, if people are still asking, I'm going to change. Yeah, you're going to. I'm fifty. I'm not. I'm not going to get. I'm not going to pay someone else to tattoo copyrighted images on myself. <laughs> I may tattoo copyrighted images on myself by myself, but just only because I don't draw as good as them. Yeah, I don't draw as well as them. So. Well, you know what you could always. I don't want to pay them. You know what you could I always. Could oh, I was going to say you don't want to pay. I was going to say you know what you could always do, Chris. You could approach people for a license to reproduce it. Maybe, maybe when my um, retirement happens, I'll I'll go back and do all my reparations. They'll <laughs> be like, "What are you doing? This is so weird." I owe you this from twenty years ago. <laughs> so. I feel like we're probably about wrapping up. Um, so, Marie, I just wondered what, what kind of research and, and projects you've got going on in the pipeline at the minute. Where's your research taking you? Yeah, so at the moment I've actually been doing some work on graffiti, which nice. is also an mm-hmm. awesome subculture. Um, but next year I'm hoping to return to tattoo and do some work on tattoo and NFTs and see 
you know, to what extent these new creative practices are playing out in this particular field. So you may see more of me in the tattoo space yet. Yes, please. (laughs) So will you do us a favour? Let us know so we can have you back on because we love you. (laughs) Yeah. Sure. I reckon this will probably be a three-year plan at this stage, but yes. (laughs) We'll be here. We We got plenty of people to talk to, so. And I've indentured Mike for a doctoral degree, so he'll be here for a bit. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess before we leave, um, if you want to plug anything, give uh, give ways for people to follow you and your work, uh, feel feel free. Yep, yep. Well, I'll just plug my Twitter. (laughs) Um, So Twitter, I'm I'm at Dr. Marie underscore IP. So if you're interested in different um, subcultural arts and controversies and how they intersect with copyright you can find me on twitter there and that's the type of content i post marie it's been a real pleasure yeah it's been great thank you so thank you oh thank you so much for having me i feel like a bit of an interloper in this space but (laughs) i don't know why it's spot on this is the best it's been great yeah this is is exactly what we want to talk about like every day all the time and not have to teach and do other stuff (laughs) no more emails (laughs) <laughs> we were talking we were talking about that earlier we just like i just feel i just want to like hang out and write about tattooing now i'm kind of burned out on everything else so thank you yeah, yeah. thanks it's been nice thanks so much thanks for listening we're on twitter at inking underscore immunity and on instagram and facebook at inking dot of dot immunity The hosts of the show are Dr. Chris Lynn and Mike Smetana at the University of Alabama and Dr. Becky Owens at UK Sunderland. Kira Yancey is the production manager. Thanks to the University of Alabama Anthropology Department for helping make this show possible. You can find our full, unedited Season 2 interviews on our Facebook page or watch them happening live on Facebook most Wednesday mornings. See you next time.